You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. And open up your Bibles to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. Uh, we took a week off last week from this book of the Bible, and we had a guest speaker named Pastor Bob Coughlin. If you weren't able to be here uh, last Sunday, I would highly recommend, I always recommend if you're able to, you can catch up on sermons that you missed, but it was particularly helpful and challenging and good. He preached about music in the life of Christians and the life of the church and how we sing, even our heart attitudes and what God does through it in our hearts, and so it was really helpful to me, and I know from hearing from many of you, it was really helpful for you. You as well. So if you missed it, you missed out, I would encourage you to go to the website or uh, get on our podcast, wherever you listen to that, and, and check that out from last Sunday. But we're back in John today. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We'll look at the first 15 verses of this, uh, the start of John 6. Uh, there's a quote I came across this week by a ma- an ancient writer, which you can tell he's ancient by his name. I think he pronounced it Thucydides or something like that, Thucydides. Uh, he had this quote where he said this, Of all manifestations of power, restraint impresses men the most. Of all manifestations of power, restraint impresses men the most. And the point that he was trying to make, and we're going to see it even in this text that we look at today, demonstrated in the life of Jesus, is that there's a ton of ways people can demonstrate power, that they can manifest power. Sometimes it's in just sheer physical strength. People much stronger than me can just do impressive things physically. Sometimes it's in military strength. There, there's people who have weapons that they, they flex their muscles, so to speak, and what they can do and weapons that they can wield. There's power that can happen in a lot more relational ways, though, too, in relationships and uh, whether it's within families or friendships or group dynamics where people have power over other people through their words or through their persuasion. Uh, There's a lot of ways that people can manifest power, but what he was saying is the most impressive demonstration of power is actually when you show restraint. When actually a powerful person who has the ability to do those things, has the ability to impress, to show off their skills and their strength, that they actually choose to forego that, to hold to hold back on that and to lay off of it. That is where an even greater level of strength and of power is demonstrated. And so you could think of a, a military leader who has all these weapons at their disposal but chooses to hold off on them. Uh, or a, a teacher maybe in a classroom who has a smart aleck student and who could easily win a battle of wits with them and embarrass them, but she chooses to, to kindly answer questions and not put them in their place and to show mercy. Or and it's Super Bowl Sunday. There could be a team from New England who beats everybody all the time who maybe for once would choose to not beat other teams tonight. That would be nice. I would like if they showed some restraint. Uh, but there, there's... A lot of ways power can be manifested, but really, truly, and Jesus is going to put this on display for us in this story today, I think restraint is the greatest demonstration of power. When there's an ability to do something that is held off, that's held back. And we're going to see Jesus do both of those things in this story today. We're going to see him do this miracle, this supernatural uh, feeding of 5,000 people, but we're also going to see him at the end of this story hold back on something that was an opportunity, but right in front of him, something he could have easily done to demonstrate his power in some other measures, and he holds off. He actually walks away from it. He's going to show restraint. 
So we're going to read this, John 6, verses 1 through 15. And this is, one, this is, to my knowledge, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Uh, John seems to have written the latest of all the Gospel writers, and it seems like he chose on purpose to include stories in his record that typically weren't in the other one. He wanted to, to shed some light on some territory that wasn't in the Word of God yet. Um, but this is one, uh, this is the miracle that he said in his mind, inspired by Spirit, he could not leave out. Uh, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke had all recorded this miracle, he's like, i got to include it as well. It's got to be in the story. It's so core and so significant. And so this is the one miracle that is in all four Gospels, and we're getting to read it now. So it'll be a familiar story to most of you, but I encourage you to try to hear it. Think about it with with new eyes, with new ears, and with an open heart this morning. So let's read this, John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's like a day's wage for a worker, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, I would love to know the tone of this statement, by the way. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up uh, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is a fascinating story uh, that, that there's much that we could learn from. I, I, I'm guessing that many of you, if you grew up in church, you grew up hearing this story, maybe in a Sunday school class, or your mom or dad would tell it to you, or, or maybe you've seen it in kids' Bibles, or you've just read it and studied it in a, a class that you've been older, or read it on your own. And there's all sorts of things we could draw from this story. There's people do kind of trivial, silly things, like talking about not leaving leftover food and not wasting things, nonsense like that. To uh, there's, I sat through a sermon one time at a church of an extended family, a relative, that she was embarrassed when we walked out because. Uh, she said, I'm so sorry, Mark, that he preached this this way. Because the guest preacher that morning preached this text and said that he thought the point of the story was that 
Jesus didn't really multiply this food, but that there was all these people there with their own food hidden that they weren't going to share. And that the real miracle was that Jesus got them to open up and share their food with one another. There's nonsense like that that people read into this story. Um, But what I would want to suggest as a main point, or the main one at least that we'll focus on this morning from this story that John records for us, I, I would state it this way, is that Christ's kingdom is marked by loving provision for others rather than by forceful promotion of self. That Christ's kingdom is marked by loving provision for others rather than by forceful promotion of self. I'm going to break this text into two chunks. One is significantly bigger than the other. Uh, The first one is going to be the first 13 verses. It's the main chunk of the story. And then later we'll look at the last two verses. But I think in these first 13, you see the powerful Christ. You see what he is capable of doing. Him, in a sense, flexing his muscles of the, the capabilities that he had as the Son of God. And so what you see happen here, this is familiar to many of you, but maybe new for some, Uh, What is happening here is that Jesus, last time we saw him as far as a story went, was back in the city of Jerusalem, him healing that uh, man by the pool of Bethsaida. But now he's up in the northern part by the Sea of Galilee. And we don't know everything that happened in between there. But it says that him and his disciples uh, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and that there's a large crowd following after him, verse 2 says. And the reason the crowd is following him, he tells us, is because they had seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. Presumably he'd been doing things, healing people, probably even well beyond what's recorded here specifically for us. But this crowd is intrigued. And it's not just that they're following him as if we follow people on Twitter or they liked him. It's they're literally following him. They're, they're, going, they're going where he goes. They are trying to see uh, where he stays, probably wanting to hear from him and maybe even wanting him to do miracles for them, wanting him to heal them or others that they knew. And so there's this massive crowd following him that we find out later had 5,000 men as part of it. That's not including if there was wives with them or other women that were there or children. Uh, There's a massive crowd of people that are following after him. And Jesus, he's gone up on the side of this mountain to be just with his disciples, like that small group of disciples. But he sees this crowd coming, and we're going to see what he does. And John drops a a helpful note in here in verse 4 that this is at the time of Passover. I'll mention that a little bit later. But it was a significant time in their life as a Jewish people, uh, this time of Passover. Uh, But Jesus lifts up his eyes, verse 5 says, and sees them coming. And then I would love to have heard this dialogue, not just on a written page, but what it was actually like in person to hear tone and uh, is there sarcasm in this question or just kind of rolling their eyes or things like this. Because it's just an interesting situation because Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And I could see Philip just kind of putting his hands up like, are you serious? Like we're on a side of a mountain and there's probably 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. We can't just call up the local baker and have him whip up food for all of us. I could, I just wonder what's clicking in his mind. Um, but Jesus asks them and it says in verse 6, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. 
right? It's not as if he's asking Philip and then Philip doesn't have a good plan. And so Jesus is like, oh, okay, I'll just make food for everybody miraculously. He knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to ask Philip this, I think, to show Philip some things that hopefully we'll have time to touch on. But but he asked him, uh, Philip answered him that, I mean, I could work for 200 days and not have enough money to even scratch the surface of this with all that money to give food to all of these people. And then I'd love to hear Andrew's tone as well in verse 9 when he comes and uh, I would say this with sarcasm probably. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, a loaf would have been probably like a small roll of barley would have been like the cheapest bread that they could get and make. And he that's all the food they've got. And I, I'm imagining in his mind saying, this is going to do no good, obviously. Let's just send them on. Let's just have them either be hungry while they listen to you, Jesus, or just send them on to find food elsewhere. But then Jesus says, have them sit down. I love that. He says, have them sit down. And John even includes, because he's remembering back, because he was there, that there was much grass in this place. And all these thousands upon thousands of people sit down. And this could just come in one eyeball out the other, because we've read it so many times. But it says that Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And so he takes this very small quantity of food, maybe even this the fish might have been this like pickled fish stuff that they would have as snacks, which sounds absolutely gross to me, but would have been very normal for them. He takes this super small quantity of this, and after giving thanks, we are not told the logistics of this, like how it's happening, if it just like appeared in baskets, or if it, we don't know if Jesus kept just, we're not told the mechanics of it. Uh, in any of the Gospels, but all this food starts to multiply, and people aren't just like biting off little crumbs. They, they're eating their fill. They're, they're eating to the point of being full, and then they gather up baskets full, far more than what they even started with at the end. They're, they're gathering up this massive quantity of food after thousands upon thousands of people have eaten. And Jesus here is showing, he, he could have used his powers for anything, right? He could have used his power to put himself on display, to, to make people be impressed with him and do things just for himself, to provide things for himself. But he used his power over and over again to give to others, to serve them, to fill their stomachs, uh, to, to give them what they needed. And that he did it abundantly. He provided over and over, even beyond their need, that they had their fill and they ate till that they were full. And so Jesus puts his power on display here. There's no doubt about it that, that these people are struck. We'll see their reaction here in just a few minutes. But they are struck by what they see. What they are actually not just hearing about as rumors now. But what they get to see and eat and experience the supernatural power of this man, Jesus. I think that there's some things before we move to the end of this text that, that we can learn from Jesus' example and what he did here that are, are helpful and that are relevant to us. One is just very simply, to when we think about Philip here, and Jesus asking him, hey, where are we to go buy bread so that these people may eat? It says that, that he's testing him. And I think what he is trying to show Philip and what he would want to show us today is to see beyond just the physical nuts and bolts of this world. 
when we come up to problems or situations, Philip looked around at this circumstance, this environment, and all he's thinking is dollars and cents. That's what Andrew's thinking of, dollars and cents as well. All he's thinking about is that we don't have the bread. We'd normally get that from a baker or some other. We might make it ourselves. He just is thinking of the, the atoms and molecules and stuff of this world and places I can go, things I can buy, the, the normal mechanics of this world. And he's forgetting that standing right in front of him is the Son of God who can do anything. That he's forgetting that there's this God who created the world and that has already by Jesus entered into it and can do anything. He can provide in supernatural ways. He can do miraculous things. And I think that he wanted Philip to see that and realize the smallness, the limitations of his mind, that he had tunnel vision to just think purely in terms of what was right in front of his face and not to even consider that God might intervene in some supernatural ways. And I think he would want to challenge us on that, to, to not just look at the circumstances of our lives as if this is all there is. Atheists look at the world that way naturalists look at the world that way that this is all that there is and i got to figure out a way to make this work but christians ought to know above all other people that there is a god who created this world and that can intervene in it in supernatural ways and we ought to have eyes to see how he could do that how he could provide in miraculous ways i also think with this boy here uh, i will not uh, go the route that that one pastor i heard in the sermon that he said but i do think it's instructive that jesus actually used a small gift to multiply out and to give to people. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus could have just spoken oodles of bread into existence from nothing, right? If he could do this, how much harder would it be? It's not as if he, like, had to have the bread there, and then he, like, spoke some magic words, and now that bread could come. He could have done it without, right? He didn't have to have that boy there. That boy's basket could have been empty, and he still could have made all the food. But Jesus chose to take a small gift, a small contribution, and to multiply it out to care for many, many, many people. And I think that's instructive to us because sometimes when we think about what we think are small things that we bring to the table, small investments of time, small investments of skill or an ability, I think that's not that great, honestly, in comparison to other people. Or think about maybe a financial gift I can bring to a person or offer to the church. Like we think if we, we, we underestimate what God can do with our small, meager offerings, that, that if there's small things that we're given, we ought to still give it back to the Lord and trust that he can use this in ways I'm not even envisioning. That he can use my words. He can use my time. He can use my skills. He can use even my gifts to, to benefit people beyond my wildest imagination. And we ought to have confidence that he can do that. But I think mostly you see from Jesus here is this orientation to serve and to give to others. To not put himself on display, to not just draw attention to himself purely for applause and for accolades for himself. But he used the skill and the power that he had within him to give to other people. To provide for their needs, to take care of them and what they needed in the moment. And we've seen this through the book of John and we'll continue to. We're calling it this theme of love that gives. That's how God operates and orients himself towards us. He loves us and then he provides for us. He doesn't just take and doesn't just draw away from us, but he gives to us. He provides for us what we need and he calls us to do the same for people. When we're given a skill, when we're given a gift, when we're given an opportunity, when we have something like that, we are to use that not to 
to promote ourselves, not to put ourselves on display, but to care for other people, to give them what they need, to have eyes out when I have a, a, a privileged position or I have some authority in a relationship to use it to serve the other people or that other person and not as a means to, to show off, not as a means to just get what I want out of a circumstance. And if Christ lived this way, we're called to live that way as well in all the different parts of life that we have. And we ought to not see people as inconveniences. Jesus could have just shooed this crowd away and said, hey, I'm just trying to have time with my disciples here. Go home. Leave me alone. And sometimes he did do that in a sense, like where he, he needed time alone. He needed time with them. But here he did not see them as an inconvenience. He said, I have this power. I have this ability. And I want to use it to serve them. I want to care for them. And that ought to be how we orient ourselves as well. And so Jesus does this supernatural, powerful act that nobody has done before and nobody has done since anything remotely similar to this. But he's, he's showing off his, his supernatural skills to care for other people. But what I want to spend the rest of the time that remains looking at is the last two verses where we see the crowd's response to Jesus. Because I think this is where the Lord may want to challenge us even more today. Because the, the crowd's response is one that's very interesting. Because at first it starts off really good. It seems like, yes, they're getting it. Um, but then very quickly, like many of us, uh, verse 15 comes and we see, oh, their motives aren't so good here. Or they're pretty confused in, in how they're responding to Jesus. So let, let's look again at that, verses 14 and 15. If we saw the powerful Christ in the beginning part of the story, here we'll see a power-hungry crowd, and that there's a power hunger within them. So verse 14 says that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So this seems like they're getting off on the right foot here, okay? So they, they had come, the crowd had come, we saw back in verse 2, because they had heard about Jesus healing the sick. It had been, they'd either made, maybe they'd seen some of it, but probably more likely they'd heard about him doing these things. But now while they're sitting on this mountainside on that green grass, they literally tasted of something he supernaturally made. Uh, they, they cannot deny this. Maybe they were sitting far back and they're before microphones and whatnot. They're just seeing this Jesus saying a prayer and then they know there's no food, but somehow minutes later, an hour later, their food made it back to them, even at the back, and they're eating however much they want, and they see these baskets filled up with leftovers. They could not deny that this man is doing supernatural things, uh, that, that God is at work in him, that, that, that he is doing things that no one else can do, that, that is without question in their mind. They've heard about it, but now they've seen it and literally tasted it, the, the supernatural power of Jesus, And so their response, when they see the sign, they say, the things start to click in their mind. They say, this is the prophet. And what they're talking about is, if you read back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, their great prophet from of old uh, for the Jewish people, this is the Mark Goodwin translation, had essentially said in Deuteronomy 18, someday there's going to be a prophet way better than me that comes. A spokesman on behalf of God is going to be somebody that blows me out of the water. And when he comes, you better listen to him. Like, you better do everything that he says. I'm going to send him, God says. But Moses is saying, when he comes, when this prophet comes, you better listen to him. And so that's what's clicking in their mind is as they've heard about his teaching, but even more so as they've started to see his power on display, 
supernatural things God is doing through him, they think this is him. This is the prophet that Moses told us to have our eyes out for. This is him. And so this is a good response. This is initially on the surface a good response. They're excited, it seems. This is the prophet. This is the one we've been waiting for. It would have whipped up a lot of excitement in their hearts, and rightfully so. But you see as verse 15 comes, if that was just the end of the story, that would be nice. But as verse 15 comes, you see that they wanted to do something that was inappropriate and that Jesus very obviously does not want to happen. It says that they wanted to come and take him by force to make him king. And that could seem really weird to us if we, if we don't think about what was going on or what these circumstances were. Like, why on earth would they want to take Jesus by force and go make him king? It doesn't seem like he's wanting to do that. He's just on the side of a mountain giving food to people. But it's very understandable in my opinion of why they were interested in doing this and sometimes we don't think about this do you remember back when it said in verse 4 that the passover was at hand remember that this is the this is the time of year that this this event was happening was at the time of passover and if you know about the passover from the old testament you know that it was the time back in the ancient more ancient history of israel that they had that they were rescued by god from slavery in Egypt. That there had been hundreds of years where they had been under the thumb and the rule of the Egyptians, of the pharaohs, and having to work for them as slaves. And God did this miraculous thing that came to be known as the Passover, where he had passed over the houses of the Israelites, who had put blood over their doors. But that when this angel came, instead of passing over the houses of the Egyptians, he put to death their firstborn son. And it was this moment, this event, this supernatural thing that God used to lead to his people being freed from slavery and to to be uh, led into the promised land eventually, to feel freedom finally as his people. And he told them every year, celebrate it. Like have a feast, celebrate it. There's sacrifices that they were supposed to do to remember this freedom that God had given them. But put yourself in the shoes of these men and even these women and kids that were in this crowd. The Passover for them in this day, in the day of Jesus, would have been bittersweet. They would have been a reminder when the Passover would come every year. And let's say they had the luxury to go down to Jerusalem. When they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they'd be, they would be able to do the sacrifices and, and celebrate and eat the things that they were called to do. But it would, it would be very evident to them when they were in Jerusalem that they were under the thumb of the Romans. Because at this time, there was this Roman government, this empire that was stretching out over most of the known world that they gave people some freedoms to practice their religion how they wanted to, but they were in control. Like, they were the ones who could tax them however much they wanted, that they could shut things down if they saw fit. They could control and manipulate these people however they wanted. They were the ones who were in charge. And so this Passover time every year would have been a reminder to these people of, God freed us long ago. But we don't have freedom again. Like now we don't have freedom again. It's just the Romans now instead of the Egyptians. And it it would have been this bittersweet thing for them. And so these men 
And this crowd, when they start to know, man, this guy seems like the prophet. He seems like the one that God has told us he's going to send. We are sick of the Romans. Like, we are sick of them taxing us. We are sick of them being in control of us. Jesus, you can do anything. Let's take you to Jerusalem, and we are going to bust some heads, and we are going to put you on the throne in Jerusalem and get rid of these Romans once and for all. You can do it, and we're going to take you to do it. That was the temptation that was in their heart because they were so tired of being under the control of the Romans. And that's why they're wanting to take him by force and take him down to Jerusalem and make him king and to get rid of these Romans once and for all. It's hard for us to imagine, but imagine, I've, I've watched a show on Netflix called Man in the High Castle. It's this interesting hypothetical world where we actually lost World War II and where the Nazis and the Japanese have taken over what used to be known as the U.S. and now they're in control. And it made me think, man, we as Americans, we so prize our freedom and that's a good thing, but we take it for granted. But imagine if something like that had happened. Like, we were under the rule of Nazis, as awful and grievous as that sounds and would be. Imagine if we still celebrated July 4th, but it was under their thumb. Like, how hollow that would seem. Oh, yeah, we're independent. Like, we remember Independence Day, but we're really under your control. That would have been kind of like what celebrating Passover for these people would have been like. Man, we're kind of free, but we're not really free, and we're sick of it. Like, we want God to free us again. And they thought the way to do it was by taking Jesus by force and saying, we are going to wield the spear, we're going to come in, we are going to take over in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, none of that. Like, Jesus said, it says that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus, if he would have ever been tempted, I think, to want to, to find glory in being powerful and having some sort of military force and taking political control, this would have been, I think, the moment that he felt it probably the most. That there's this crowd of thousands of people that are whipped up, that he's demonstrating all this power that he has, and they're saying, we'll take you in. Like, we can do this. And Jesus shows strength by restraint. Says, no. Like, that is not how my kingdom works. That is not how I'm going to operate. And he sees these plans formulating their minds, and he withdraws. He moves away from that and does not want anything to do with it. And it's absurd if you stop and think about it that these guys would think that this was a good plan. As if Jesus needs them. He just fed, I don't know, like 15, 20,000 people probably from almost nothing. And like you think your manpower is somehow going to be what tips the scale in favor of him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and take over. He could have gone to Jerusalem. He had gone to Jerusalem a year or two before this at Passover and started flipping over tables, if you remember that. He could have done way more than that on his own. He did not need these people. But they want to take him by force and say, we're going to take you and make you king. And Jesus, who could do it all on his own, says no. Like, I'm not doing that and it's not because jesus was afraid of the romans it's not because jesus thought oh man what if i fail what if i try to take over and i, I don't succeed jesus was not afraid and jesus was not weak jesus was powerful but it's because rome wasn't big enough of a target the, the kings that were in Jerusalem, the, the rulers like Pontius Pilate and other people, and the, the emperor of Tiberius, who this sea is named after in this story, those guys were nothing to him. 
Like, he could have taken them down so quick, but he knew there was a bigger enemy that he had to take down. And he couldn't do it by whipping up a crowd and going into Jerusalem. He had to do it because the enemy was sin. He had to do it by being put to death, not by putting others to death. He had to show strength by his restraint and going to the cross and letting people. He could have squashed. He could have spoken words and destroyed them, letting them put him on the cross for our sins and be punished in our place upon the cross. This, that happened the next Passover. That's what happened. One year from this is when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And instead of whipping up a, a rebellion and, and overthrowing people, he lets himself be put to death. There's a man named Ed, Edmund Clowney who said that Jesus would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. That's how Jesus showed power. It wasn't through military. It wasn't through politics. It was by laying down his life for your sake and for mine. That is how he demonstrated power that is unmatched, that no one could ever even hold a candle to. This is instructive to us in a lot of ways in our life, I hope, as the people of Christ. Because we all face temptations to want power, to want, uh, even if it's not physical strength or political power, we all want to be the ones who are calling shots, the ones who are making things happen and making sure that certain outcomes happen. We want to be the ones who are in control who have power and force, and whether it's within our families, we feel tempted to it, whether it's in friendships, whether it's in a workplace, it's in government and politics. And we are people who crave power and control, and we want to be people who are able to call shots and assert our authority over other people. Like we all face temptations to that. We want to be people who promote ourselves rather than patiently waiting on God to give us opportunity. We need to be people who are, we are wary of self-promotion that we feel come up in our hearts. The, the call that we sense, the voice we hear inside of our minds, our hearts to promote ourselves and to, to make ourselves look great, it sounds far more like the voice of Satan than it does the voice of if you think about the, the Garden of Eden, it was Satan that came to Adam and Eve and said, you can be like God. They wanted to, them to promote themselves and like take up a, a place that really wasn't theirs to take. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, you hear Christ say things like, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's this selflessness that's saying, I, I am not going to promote myself. I'm not going to make myself the center of all things and just grasp for power, but I will let whatever your will is be done to me, Father. That is how God's people should be marked. We should be people who are patient as God works in our life. Christ waited. It was just one more year, but it was still a year to see the fulfillment of what his Father had in store for him. And we often are people who want to rush it, and we want to be in control, and we want to drive things instead of patiently waiting for God to work. We are to be careful of how when we are given opportunities to be in control or have authority or to have power we need to be people who are careful about how we use that we've been given skills and we've been given abilities and we've been given roles we are to be careful of how we use those and in the workplace we're not to use our positions to manipulate people 
to intimidate people to get certain things that we want, to assert our power over people. In our homes, we're not to do that with our spouses. Uh, definitely are never to ever use physical strength to intimidate. That's a grievous, grievous sin. But we are also not to use our words, our cleverness, our intellect to try to argue people and just, just maneuver things to get the things that we want. We are to use our positions, our intelligence, our cleverness to serve people. We are to, to be people who are are patient people who are careful about the authority and the power that we are given in our lives. Even collect as individuals we are, but I would also say this, I think collectively we need to be wary of this as well, this craving for power that we have as Christians. I see this, I see it in my own heart at times, and I'll tread lightly here, but I'll still talk about it. Uh, when it comes to politics, when it comes to government in our nation, we live in a nation which is wonderful, we are a democratic republic where the people we are governed by the people right and we get to elect people and we get to have representatives who help make decisions for us but we even as Christians become like this crowd at times where we think if we can just get the power like if we can just get the majority if we can just like have the 51 percent or get the right people in the right places that then God's kingdom is going to be like exploding then God's kingdom is just going to spread like wildfire in our country. And maybe we wouldn't be so audacious to say that, but we still are craving power. We, we put our confidence in getting enough of a voting block raised up to be able to get certain people in office or out of office. We do things like boycotts, like economic boycotts, which if a professor of mine helped me understand one time that essentially what we're doing like when we boycott Starbucks or something like that is we are seeking to say we are so powerful as Christians that we are going to stick it to you like we are going to show you that you must bow to us and do what we want you to do to change your minds and we try to do it with force it's an economic force but we try to do it with force. And we put our hope as Christians collectively sometimes in getting the right people in office, getting the right majorities in place, getting the right judges in place, and we think that Christ's kingdom is dependent upon us, and it isn't. And it's not that we shouldn't strive for those things, but we ought to not put our hope in those men or those women, those, those happenings. We are to put our hope in Christ who doesn't need our help. He can rule the universe full well without us. And he will use us still, just like he used these loaves and these fish. He, he can use us, but he can do whatever he sees fit. And we are to not put our hope in power that the world knows, but in power that is supernatural that we find in Christ. There's a podcast that I listen to called The Tim Ferriss Show. Uh, I, I recommend it, but with some caveats, there's some language in it. Uh, so kids, I would definitely not recommend it to you. Uh, adults, use your discretion on that. But there's an interview that he did recently with an actor named Terry Crews. Uh, some of you know who he is off the top of your head. Most of you would know him if you saw him. Uh, but even if you don't, that is okay. But he uh, he's an actor. He also used to play in the NFL a long time ago. The guy is ripped. Very, very, very strong. Very funny, intelligent. I mean, very fascinating guy. But he is notably strong. And that has relevance to what I'm about to share. Um, he was sharing about a story uh, from his childhood. He was recounting about his father and how physically abusive his dad had been toward his mom. 
he was a kid and how he had felt so, he as a son had felt so powerless and so weak that he couldn't do anything to stop it. And that even if he tried to, his dad could have just squashed him. And he said that it, it mo- that's part of what motivated him as life went on to get strong, to get physically strong and say, nobody is going to treat me like that. Like nobody is going to do that and I'm not going to be powerless to fight back or to make them stop. And so he grew into this man who was incredibly strong. And for a season, it seemed like his dad had, had treated his mom better. She, he had shown a lot more restraint. Um, but there was this thing that had happened where, I, if I remember the story right, he had, Terry Crews had had his kids stay at their house one time and had told his dad, like, you better not ever, ever do that. And he used choice words I won't repeat, but saying to the effect, I will come and beat the snot out of you if I ever hear that you've touched my mom again. And his kids were there, and he, he got a phone call that his father had, had hurt his mom again. And he said that he drove over to the house and he came through on his word. He said he just beat his dad to like an inch of his life. And he said what was fascinating at the end of it, and I think instructive, is he said that it felt so hollow after I did it because I realized I'm doing the same thing that he did to my mom. Like I'm trying to control him and force him into changing by just beating him up. I'm doing the same thing, the same ugliness that was in my dad is inside of me. And, and what I thought would feel so good feels terrible and, and hollow and empty. And he, he kept talking about how a few years later that he, this conversation he was having with his dad where he realized he needed to show compassion and not excusing his dad or ever letting him do it again, but show compassion and kindness to his dad. And he talked about this conversation that he had with his dad and where he was trying to thank him for whatever he could. And his dad just started crying. And he gives him this hug uh, and just said it felt very healing. And he, he, Terry Crews said this statement. I'll end with this. He, he said, oh, I'm on the wrong page. He said, talking to the interviewer, he said, I have to use my strength for good. Because everybody can knock somebody out. But to, I love this, he said, but to give a hug with muscles is a whole nother matter. I love that. I, I cannot knock somebody outside, no, so maybe that's not true. <laughs> uh, but he said, I have to use my strength for good because everybody can knock somebody out, but to give a hug with muscles is a whole nother matter. I love that phrase, to give a hug with muscles. I think that's a 2018 version of Thucydides. And what he said, that there's this power when it's present and a person has capability to do great good or even to harm, but they invite a person in and hug that person with their muscles there. It's a beautiful thing that they've shown kindness and compassion and interest in that person, not just in putting their power on display, but in caring for that person. And that's what Christ did in this story, that he had supernatural, unmatched power, but he showed restraint because he knew he wanted to receive us. That the same Jesus who is infinitely powerful could look at any of us with infinite strength and send us to hell forever and judge us, rightfully so. But with those infinitely strong muscles, he invites us to come to him and he will welcome us and receive us if we will return from our sin and put our trust in him. 
That is a beautiful thing. That is supernatural uh, in what he's demonstrated, not just in feeding 5,000, but in showing restraint and in offering to receive us.